Welcome to another episode of the Ottoman History Podcast. Today, Dr. Michael Talbot and I are joined by Dr. Joshkun Tunjer, a lecturer in modern economic history at University College London, Department of History. He has previously taught and worked as a researcher at the London School of Economics and the European University Institute. He received his PhD from the London School of Economics in 2011. His research focuses on the economic and financial history of the Middle East and Southeast Europe and long-term history of international financial markets. Today, we will be discussing his recent book entitled Sovereign Debt and the International Financial Control, the Middle East and the Balkans, 1870-1914, published by Palgrave Macmillan in August 2015. So to start us off uh, with the first question, what were, I suppose, the historiographical considerations of such a wide study on sovereign debt that you had to take into consideration? So this book is a is a study in comparative financial history, and I uh, draw on the history of four countries of the Eastern Mediterranean, Egypt, the Ottoman Empire, Greece, and Serbia, during roughly 1870s to uh, 1914. And I focus on the financial history of these countries around the themes of sovereign debt and international financial control. I think the book broadly engages uh, with three distinct streams of literature. The first one is the economics literature on sovereign debt. The second one is the economic history literature of the pre-1914 globalization. And the final one is the national historiographies of the of the region and in this context the Ottoman historiography. So to start with the with the first one, I think the, the big question behind this research is why does sovereign debt exist? So it may sound like perhaps a provocative question, but actually economists have been trying to answer this question mainly due to distinct characteristics of sovereign debt contracts. I mean, the best way to to understand this is to compare sovereign debt with private debt. So in the case of private debt, you have a contract between borrower and and the lender. And in the case of any breach of contract, then the lender can take the borrower to the court and ask a legal enforcement of the unpaid debt. But you don't have this in the context of sovereign debt when a government declares default, then there is no legal enforcement mechanism. There are other unique characteristics of sovereign debt contracts. In the case of sovereign debt, you have usually more than one lender or more than one bondholders, and they have the collective action problem in the case of a default. Um, Or they may be in different parts of the world, so they may find it difficult to coordinate their actions. Similarly, in the case of a default, there may be seniority issues that which bondholder will have the priority over which one. So all these issues, in a way, um, justify the question, why does sovereign debt exist? What is the economic logic behind that? Um, So besides this theoretical and legal literature, if you look at economic history literature, um, the, the question that was asked is how did creditors enforce sovereign debt contracts before 
1914. And here we focus on before 1914 because this is the so-called first era of financial globalization. And that is defined in a quite um, mechanical way. Uh, increased movement of capital across the world, and which we can quantify. During this period, from roughly 1870 to 1914, uh, capital movements in the form of sovereign debt was historically at its peak. Um, so borrowing centers in, in London, Paris, Berlin, uh, provided opportunity for the debtor countries of the world economy during this period, such as the Latin American countries, Eastern European countries, or the Eastern Mediterranean as a whole, could borrow from these financial centers. And they could borrow significantly in, in significant amounts. Um, so one consequence of this significant increase in sovereign debt was also an increase in the frequency of defaults during this period. So you have several waves of defaults in this period. One took place in 1870s and the other one is in 1890s. Um, and in each default, the creditors adopted a different strategy. Um, well, if you look at the economic history literature, there's there, there's a wide range of uh, methods that the creditors implemented to claim back um, the unpaid debt. The maybe most well-known one to, to historians is the gunboat diplomacy. Right, So you could simply make use of the military threat or action, uh, which happened in several countries. And it was, in fact, a, a significant threat until 1907, when there was a Hague Convention, which prevented this sort of military action against, against sovereign states on the basis of sovereign debt. Uh, there were more common, maybe, methods that were implemented by foreign creditors during this period. The trade sanctions is one of them, so you could the creditors could enforce an embargo. Credit sanctions, again, was commonly used. Uh, in this case, exclusion from international financial markets was a common method. So if you defaulted on your debt, then you wouldn't be able to borrow again, let's say, from the same stock exchange. And when we look at the Eastern Mediterranean, where the Ottoman Empire was, uh, we see a, a relatively a distinct method of enforcing sovereign debt contracts, which I call as international financial control, and in Ottoman historiography that would be referred as Ottoman Public Debt Administration, or in Turkish it would be Duyunu Umumiye. So this is the economic history literature, and to come back to the question, how did creditors historically enforce sovereign debt contracts? So this book provides a comparative answer to that. And by looking at these four cases, I try to address a more nuanced um, interpretation of these financial control institutions. Thank you so much for this really helpful overview. Um, perhaps you could give us more of a sense of what's going on in this so-called first era of um, financial globalization. So you mentioned that um, different states across the world all of a sudden are needing to borrow uh, huge amounts of money from different kinds of creditors. Why all of a sudden in this particular period are they needing to borrow so much? And you also mentioned that there were these two waves of states um, defaulting on these debts in the 1870s and the 1890s. Perhaps you could tell us why those moments were moments of default. Here I may sound a bit more like an economist, but we can maybe focus on 
supply and demand factors here, especially with regards to capital. So I think one element is the capital supply. So suddenly in the 19th century, we see that in the Western Europe, there is a significant amount of capital, which is looking for profit opportunities across the world. in fact, before 1870s, there was another wave of default which took place in 1820s. Then there's another one in 1850s and 1870s, and it goes on almost every 20, 30 years, following roughly the business cycles. So there's increased capital supply, which is exported across the world. Then there are waves of defaults and the declining capital supply. So there is this business cycle process. On the other side, if you look at the capital demand, why these countries in a way wanted to borrow um, is partly because borrowing was seen as an alternative source of revenue, which was perhaps more preferable to taxation because taxation usually brings together certain costs, political costs and tax collection costs, which I also um, discuss in the book. So from the perspective of these governments, uh, foreign debt is a relatively cheaper source of revenue. Also, they are in need of funds because the modernization is taking place in these countries. So as we know, in the case of Ottoman Empire, there are costly military and political reforms. And the state or the government was always in need of funds. If you look at the Ottoman budgets during this period, you will see constant deficits. So there is always shortage of revenue and increased military spending, especially accelerated with the territorial losses and modernization efforts. So this would be my let's say, categorical answer that the supply and demand factors which determine these uh, cycles of uh, expansion of capital and default. That's really helpful. So I guess when we have this, it's part of this story, this is also a story of banking as well, in a sense. So can you perhaps tell us about the expansion of international banking networks into the Eastern Mediterranean in this period? How quick is it? How successful is it? Yes, it is true. Uh, in fact, the banks played a significant role in the expansion of capital flows in the form of sovereign debt. And the well-known example of that is the Ottoman bank. So if you think that the Ottoman Empire for the first time borrowed in 1854 and the Ottoman Bank was founded in 1856, if I'm not wrong. So there is a, a, it's not a coincidence, obviously, because these banks were acting as intermediaries between the Ottoman government and the international financial markets. The Ottoman Bank, as this audience may know, is not an, was not an Ottoman bank. It was actually a British bank in, initially then it became a British-French bank. Um, so these foreign banks acted as intermediaries. Uh, so their role was usually act as underwriters. So they would buy the bonds from the Ottoman government and sell them into the, into the stock exchanges of London and Paris. A familiar story perhaps for some of our listeners from the countries of Southern Europe of uh, debt being sold on the uh, the banking floors and the financial floors of Europe and Western Europe particularly. You mentioned 1854 was the uh, first uh, time the Ottoman Empire started or the Ottoman government started to borrow. Can you just contextualise that period for us? Why is it 1854? What happens then? We know it's the Crimean War, but uh, what are the, the stimuli for the Ottoman government to start borrowing? In fact, the Ottoman government wanted to borrow 
before 1854. So there were attempts of the Ottoman government even in the late uh, 18th century to uh, start borrowing process. So they had some interactions with Rothschild of London, but the Rothschild was not convinced that the Ottoman government had enough resources to pay back. Um, but this 1854 is an important date because it tells us actually before 1914, finance and diplomacy were always going hand in hand. And that's a very good example of that. You don't only see this in the Ottoman case, you also see this in the case of Greece, Egypt, uh, and Serbia. So any financial crisis were also linked to some sort of military or diplomatic crisis. So 1854, we see that the Britain is supporting, of course, the Ottoman Empire against the Russian expansion. And also this support is extending to the financial affairs as well. So there's closer financial links in terms of lending, also in terms of establishing an Ottoman bank. Um, so Ottomans, Ottoman government, I guess, was trying to make use of these diplomatic links and also engage in foreign lending at the same time. I'm really glad that, you, that you're that you looking at this comparatively because we often kind of think of the Ottoman Empire as being a very special case of debt and uh, imperial ravaging in the uh, in the eastern Mediterranean but of course you mentioned just now that you've uh, examined the case of Egypt and Egypt is not only an important part of your story but the wider Ottoman story of reform and political and military reform particularly. Could you perhaps explain to our listeners what are the processes of sovereign debt and then eventually financial control imposed by Europeans in, in the new medieval state? Egypt is actually a very good comparison because they have a very similar chronology of events with the Ottoman Empire, but uh, the result of foreign borrowing process was significantly different in the case of Egypt. So they more or less join at the same time to the financial markets. In the case of Egypt, what we also see after the initial introduction of foreign control in 1876, which is five years before the Ottoman public debt administration, uh, it is a much more, or it was a much more ag aggressive form of international financial control, um, controlling almost 70% of the tax revenues of the Egyptian government, and compared it with the Ottoman Empire in 1882 that would be around 20%. So you see that actually this significant uh, intrusion into fiscal sovereignty actually also created a significant uh, mistrust to foreign governments mm. and a significant uh, discontent against foreign control in the case of Egypt. Therefore, in five years, you see a rapid increase in Egyptian nationalism against the British rule. And the foreign creditors, of course, knew that. And when they took over the finances of the Ottoman government in 1881, they were much more cautious. So in the case of Egypt, the tax collectors would be foreign nationality. Whereas in the Ottoman Empire, they knew that that would create a problem. So they used a, they employed tax collectors. They were Ottoman subjects. So the managing a uh, team of the Ottoman public debt administration consisted of foreign creditors, mm -hmm. but the actual tax collectors, they were Ottoman subjects to prevent a similar uh, conflict as it happened in Egypt. So what we see is that they use their expertise in one country uh, and transfer it to another country. So they learn uh, some lessons and they take or refine international financial control 
even further. And if you see in 1890s, the cases in Greece and Serbia, they are even more refined. So you don't see a direct tax collection there. You see an independent company, independent from the government and also from the bondholders, which collects the tax revenues, then transfers them to the bondholders. So it is much more supervisory level of foreign control. So this is one finding of the book, that the financial control is not a static thing during this period. It keeps evolving. It becomes more refined by time. So it becomes, it starts with a very direct form of foreign control. And by the end of the uh, period, it becomes much more refined. So you mentioned um, that a huge percentage of the Egyptian um, revenue, state revenue, was under the control of these European creditors. Could you perhaps explain to us what they're controlling, what kind of agricultural produce or industrial output they're really focusing on? And how does that compare with the Ottoman case? I think the best way to answer the question is also to go back to the governance of sovereign debt before 1914, because the type of revenues that these foreign creditors controlled were significantly determined by the sovereign debt contracts. So during this period, as these peripheral governments did not have significant credibility in international financial markets, it would be very difficult for them to borrow without showing any guarantees. So if Ottoman government wanted to borrow, the creditor banks would ask for a guarantee how they would pay this back. And this guarantee would be in the form of assigning a particular revenue stream uh, to the repayment of the debt. So you would see, for instance, if you look at the Ottoman uh, list of Ottoman bonds during this period, um, certain loan would be secured by the sheep tax. So that means that the sheep tax revenue would be dedicated to the repayment of this particular debt. So that is where exactly we see a big difference in between Egypt and the Ottoman Empire. In the case of Egypt, Khadiv assigned his personal estates as the guarantee for the repayment. So when the Khadiv failed to repay, foreign creditors had a case to claim the personal estates of the Khadiv. Whereas in the Ottoman case, we see, let's say, the tobacco revenue is used as a, um, as a way to secure the repayments. Therefore, in the case of defaults, foreign creditors demanded the control of the tobacco revenue um, or the spritz revenue, fisheries revenue. So you have all these uh, revenue, tax revenue items. They were shown as guarantee, and as a result, they eventually went to the control of foreign creditors. So perhaps count inst instinctively, especially in the Ottoman uh, context, it seems that this uh, creation of at least the Ottoman Public Debt Administration, you mentioned, reinforced the credibility of uh, the Ottoman Empire to, to repay the debt. And uh, you, you suggested the, the, the cost of repayments drop as the time goes by. How is that explained in, in this wider context of, of outsider influence into the Ottoman Empire? Yes, actually this is where... The Ottoman historiography uh, perhaps has a, a turning point. So if you look at the traditional Ottoman historiography, uh, going back to Parus Efendi, he was writing in um, between 1910 and 1914 uh, when the Ottoman public debt administration was still active. And he his writings were compiled under the title of Fiscal Arrest of Turkey, 
Türkiye'nin mali tutsaklığı. So this book is in a way served as the basis of the interpretation of Ottoman public debt administration even in the modern Ottoman economic history. Ottoman public debt administration was seen as a tool of imperialism. Here the foreign creditors dictated the terms and they imposed foreign control over the Ottoman finances. So it is their gain and it, it is the loss of the Ottoman government. And this view was only revised in 1980s. You see a turning point in the Ottoman historiography. Actually, this was a mutually beneficial process because as a result of foreign control, Ottoman government gained cheaper access to international financial markets. And this cheaper access, not only across time, that there was a decline in the cost of borrowing, but also if you compare the Ottoman Empire with other peripheries of the time, they enjoyed significantly low borrowing rates. You can provide even more nuanced interpretation of that. If you compare, let's say, the Ottoman government with Egyptian government or Greek government or Serbian government, they all had similar types of international financial control. The Ottomans were still enjoying the lowest rates of borrowing. And this is where I think the comparative approach becomes useful uh, because I try to explain why that was the case, why foreign control in the Ottoman Empire worked better and in fact it was more successful in the short term compared to other cases of foreign control. The picture you paint here is obviously quite complicated, so thank you for, for making it so understandable. I'd like us perhaps to think about um, Serbia and Greece, because these are two countries that are often left out of the, the story of, of debt and political control. And of course, they're both relatively new countries in terms of the period that you start your book in, in the 1870s. I mean, Serbia just gets its proper independence at that period, doesn't it? What does it mean for these new states to be essentially born into this cycle of debt? And of course, I think that has resonance to Greeks and Serbs today. In fact, their independence movements were supported by international capital. So if you think that the first Greek borrowing took place in 1820s, even before there was an independent Greek state. And the idea here was to support the independence of Greece. And we see a similar story in the case of Serbia. The Serbian government started borrowing as early as 1870s from Russia initially, but later from uh, Britain and France. So their independence is, uh, or their, their independence were closely linked to their participation to international financial markets. Uh, but I think the biggest difference here, the way that the international financial control functioned in these countries compared to, say, the case of Ottoman Empire. In Ottoman case, we see a very strong harmony between foreign creditors and the Ottoman government. So the Ottoman government was keen to support the policies of the foreign creditors. They complied with any suggestions and there was no political resistance. Yes, there was popular resistance against foreign control, but no political resistance. 
Whereas in the case of Greece and Serbia, you see actually political resistance towards financial control. So there is no cooperation. So whenever foreign creditors want to implement a reform, the Greek government or the Serbian government would want to put an obstacle to that. So this cooperation is one question that I ask in the in the book. Why was the Ottoman Empire more willing to cooperate with foreign creditors, but not, let's say, Greece and Serbia? And my answer is the, is the political economy of borrowing in this part of the world. Partly due to the taxation systems of these countries, but also partly due to the development level of political institutions. So in the case of Greece and Serbia, we are talking about constitutional monarchies. And if you remember the Ottoman history during this period, it's quite an authoritarian regime. So there are no political costs for the Ottoman government to cooperate with its foreign creditors. They can do that by avoiding any political consequences. Whereas in the case of Greece and Serbia, their parliaments acted as a constraint over their ability to cooperate with foreign creditors. So this is one element of the political economy story. And the other is related with their taxation system. In the Ottoman case, we see a large agrarian empire relying heavily on land tax, which is very costly to collect. Whereas in the case of smaller states of Balkans, you see a taxation system which is heavily relying on trade and customs. This is relatively less costly to collect. So as a result, just focusing on the Ottoman case, you see a, a government which was not able to tax during this period due to high tax collection costs and was willing to transfer that costly tax collection business to the foreign creditors in exchange for future credibility. So this is roughly the political economy story that I try to put forward in the book. It's absolutely fascinating. And one thing that I really like about your work is this idea of resistance that kind of threads through a number of these different cases. What interests me is if I'm an average person walking down the street in Istanbul or in Belgrade or in Cairo or in Athens, what does this all mean to me? How likely are ordinary people in these states likely to have an understanding of what's going on? And how far do these events affect their daily lives? So social history of foreign control uh, does not appear in my book. And it is it's partly, I don't try to problematize it. Uh, having said that, I think when I when I go through these reports of uh, Ottoman public debt administration, I see actually quite uh, a rich uh, presentation of how it affected the daily life of people. And you see strong uh, social resistance against foreign control. Uh, to the extent that foreign creditors would register on a monthly basis the number of debt tax collectors. So they would simply account this as part of their tax collection costs. An increase in their number would be a concern for the foreign creditors. So they in a way recognize that there would be popular resistance. I think what really mattered from their perspective, what was the situation of the government vis-a-vis to this popular resistance? And in that case, they always appraised the Ottoman government, the authoritarian Ottoman government, um, 
because they always cooperated with foreign creditors to suppress this popular resistance. Um, I know this is probably a partial answer to the question, <laughs> but um, the, this is the extent of my social history of foreign control in the region. Okay, so we've looked at some of the uh, social aspects of it, and it seems to be, uh, on the face of it, quite a, a, a rosy picture. So we need to also, I suppose, discuss what the negative, longer-term aspects of this uh, foreign intervention was. And what, what's the best way to contextualise this? What's the best way to portray this? Yes, in the, sh- in the short term, these organisations were helpful to secure cheap credit. And the cheap credit was used to to finance costly wars in the region. So in a way, it was a fuel for the campfires of the of the armies. That is one of the terms that are used by, uh, by the contemporaries. Um, but in, in the long run, though, the consequences were different for different countries, depending on this degree of cooperation. So we see that in the Ottoman case, they cooperated closely with foreign creditors. And in Greece and Serbia, that was resistance. So this cooperation led to cheap access to foreign credit, whereas the resistance meant a high cost of borrowing for smaller Balkan states. This high cost of borrowing in the long run, in a way, stimulated more reforms in the political and fiscal system. So in smaller Balkan states, you see a transition to modern fiscal state during this period Thanks to these high costs of borrowing, they had an incentive to modernize their fiscal system. Whereas in the Ottoman case, we don't see this incentive. Reforming taxation system would also mean negotiating with local elite or with your taxpayers. And negotiation would usually mean reforming political institutions. And the Ottomans did not have to go through that route. So perhaps the long-term consequence of this cooperation with foreign creditors was uh, a slowdown in the reform process of the political and fiscal institutions. So we've, we've thought a bit about um, the political economy of these four different countries that you look at in the specific uh, financial and economic context. Let's think perhaps a bit more about the taxation systems involved here. So what can you say about the taxation systems and their capacity to collect and their ability to collect and their, their different modus operandi, let's say. I think this is quite essential for this debate because if we think in the context of 19th century, there were two major sources of revenue for a government. One would be borrowing and the other one would be taxation. And we tend to think that actually they are um, interrelated with each other. So if you are able to tax more, you are also able to borrow more because... That means that from the perspective of creditors, you will be able to pay back. So taxation is seen as a, as, a, as a sign of fiscal strength. And as a result, you can borrow or access further funds. So that is why in the context of 19th century, taxation is a very important uh, element in, in fiscal history. Uh, if you look at the Ottoman, Ottoman case, uh, we see that actually... Throughout the 19th century, Ottoman government struggled to introduce an efficient system of taxation. Uh, Tax collection was not conducted by salaried employees of the state. Instead, they were collected by tax farmers. So there were attempts of the Ottoman government to 
remove this tax collection system and introduce a more centralized taxation system. But these efforts failed because the tax farmers had the local know-how, so to speak, and they could actually collect taxes more efficiently compared to an officer of the central government. So Ottoman government, in a way, accepted the tax farming as a norm during the 19th century. And that meant sharing the tax revenue with tax farmers. Besides that, given given the nature of the Ottoman Empire, it's a vast territorial empire relying on um, heavily agricultural taxes, uh, also posed a difficulty because agricultural taxes are more difficult to monitor. Um, so there could be more leaks in the system. The final cost dimension in the taxation system was the monetary system. So that is also partly linked to my future research. Uh, The monetary uh, system of the Ottoman Empire during this period was characterized by multiple monies in circulation. And the degree of monetization of the Ottoman economy was relatively less compared to, say, Greece or Serbia. So the money in circulation was not widespread. So these are all difficulties in front of taxation. So if if you don't have a monetized economy, then the collection costs will go up. So you can see that in this context, the taxation is really a burden from the perspective of Ottoman government. It's almost like a, a dirty job that is left to the foreign creditors and they kept on dealing with it until the end of the empire. And the Ottoman government could access to cheap and easy uh, funding from international financial markets. So it is really at the center of the debate. So to tax or to borrow, that is basically the key decision that these governments faced. And the relative costs of taxation and borrowing were used in the decision-making process. So one word that enters the financial vocabulary, I suppose, in the 19th century, it probably comes in earlier as well, but uh, the one that we really see coming to the fore is the bond, the issuing of bonds, the buying and selling of bonds. Could you perhaps, for listeners like myself who are less financially literate, explain briefly what a bond is and what role bonds play in the financial story of the Ottoman Empire and the other states that you examine? So sovereign debt as as uh, as a term is actually quite old. So even as early as 16th century, you would see individual bankers or banking houses would give loans to uh, sovereign governments. But perhaps here, the key term or the key difference is the public debt. When the bond is involved in, into, uh, into the system as, a, as an instrument, then we, we can talk about public debt. Uh, suddenly, an individual investor sitting in, in London uh, in late 1890s can find himself in a in a position to lend to the Ottoman government. So when, by buying these Ottoman bonds, which were readily accessible in London Stock Exchange to an average investor, they could actually engage with lending to the Ottoman government. Uh, so the process roughly uh, worked through uh, intermediary banks. Um, when Ottoman government uh, wanted to borrow, they would approach to an intermediary bank. It could be Rothschild, Barings, but more realistically, it would be Imperial Ottoman Bank. And then they would negotiate an amount and they would negotiate an interest rate. And once they agree on the process, all the commissions and etc., the Imperial Ottoman Bank would start negotiations with London Stock Exchange or 
Paris Stock Exchange. And the Imperial Ottoman Bank would manage the process of printing bonds. And these bonds would mean dividing the, the agreed amount of loan into smaller pieces so that the investors could buy them from uh, the stock exchanges. So that is, in a way, giving a public nature to lending to the sovereigns. And that is why it is making much more complicated in the case of a default. Uh, you would see that the Ottoman bonds were held by thousands of investors in in London, in Paris, in, in Berlin, in Vienna, in Istanbul. And all of them had to uh, introduce a coordinated action how to resolve this default. Uh, so the bond is a, a significant innovation in financial history. Uh, it is uh, giving the opportunity to pull capital to lend uh, in large amounts, but also it is introducing some complications, how to resolve uh, the case of uh, conflicts. So if I can pick up on the experience of the individual uh, person buying the bonds in London or Paris for the Ottoman debts, can we flip that over and think about the experience of the individual in uh, the Ottoman Empire uh, and the idea of the, the concept of the private debt? We've talked about sovereign debt and that, that's, that's your area of research, but is there anything to be said about the experience of the private individual in the Ottoman Empire? With regards to private debt experience in the Ottoman Empire, the traditional historiography tends to underline that the Ottoman financial markets were underdeveloped and there were not many opportunities for an average uh, Ottoman uh, person to borrow in private market. Um, now this story is partly true because if you look uh, the emergence of modern banks in the Ottoman Empire, you you can only see them in the mid-19th century, first with the Ottoman bank, then other foreign banks, and we don't really see a truly Ottoman banking system emerging throughout the period. But if you look other mechanisms of borrowing, maybe you can have a different story. Um, a relatively well-known case is the story of cash vakfs or para vakfları. Uh, so these were microfinance institutions, if if this term is a good term to use in this context, um, they provided credit at local level to um, to, to peasants, to merchants, uh, and so on. Of course, they did not transform into banking institutions. Uh, so that is one of the puzzles of the cash wax um, that we still need to answer. And in fact, I am working on a project now to understand why the transition to modern banking failed in the Ottoman Empire in the context of cash works, because we see similar types of uh, religious uh, finance institutions in Spain, in Italy, in different parts of Europe, and these organizations transform into modern banking institutions, whereas in the Ottoman case, uh, they fail to do so. So this is partly a future research question that I am exploring. This failure of the cash vakfs into turning into uh, modern-day banking is absolutely fascinating, uh, especially uh, in, in, in the context that we're talking about of the first era of financial globalization. The next question is, what else uh, needs to be done on, on, on this very wide and interesting topic? My, my approach, at least in, in financial history of the Ottoman Empire, to have a comparative perspective, I think that enables you to ask different types of questions. 
Because if you study cash works on their own, you see a story of um, glory, then a decline, then a fall. But then if you compare them with European cases, then it opens up different questions that you can explore different aspects of Ottoman financial history. So with that spirit, I carry on asking this type of comparative questions. And one of them is about the stock exchange development in the Middle East and the Balkans as, as a whole. Um, and this is inspired by um, the law and finance literature in financial history. Uh, what is the role of legal systems in explaining financial development? And you may realize that this will bring us to the question of the Islamic law and whether it had any impact on the financial underdevelopment of the Ottoman Empire during this period. And a good uh, institution to study in this context is the stock exchange. And we know that the Galata Stock Exchange was founded somewhere between uh, 1860s and 1870s, while it had some institutional transformations. Um, and Galata Stock Exchange, according to some, acted as a regional financial center. Um, and with the Republic, probably it lost its significance. Uh, we also know, actually, Stock Exchange in Alexandria, in Egypt, was a very important financial center uh, where British, French um, investors would speculate on cotton bonds or any other types of joint stock company shares. So. Still, this is a very uh, um, understudied part of the Ottoman financial history, and I aim to explore uh, this question more in detail in the future. And on that note, a very big thank you to Dr. Joshkun Tunjar from both uh, Dr. Michael Tolbert. Thank you. And myself, Taylan Gingar. Thank you. If you'd like to find out more, you can go to our website, www.ottomanhistorypodcast.com, where you can find a relevant bibliography on the topics we've discussed today. You'll also be able to find our other podcasts. Do also take the time to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. I'm Tailan Gingur. Thanks for listening. Thank you.